Throughout this episode, you'll hear occasional dynamically placed advertisements as well as host-read ads by me promoting the work of my sponsors, similar to what you'd experience when you're binging your favorite YouTube content. If you find the ads disruptive, consider joining my community on Patreon. Premium submarines receive full-length ad-free episodes, hundreds of hours of bonus content, and the ability to connect and chat with other listeners. To learn more, visit patreon.com slash backfromtheborderline. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. I have a super special interview lined up to play for you today. I will be sharing a conversation I had with Dana Haynes, who is a licensed clinical social worker in New Jersey. She specializes in DBT therapy, amongst other different treatment modalities. But I thought, what better way to start the podcast off than talking a little bit about DBT and what it is. DBT was developed in the late 1980s by researcher Marsha Linehan, and it was originally used to treat individuals that suffered with borderline personality disorder, but since its development, it has been proven an effective evidence-based treatment for many other mental health concerns. I will add as a sidebar, I think everyone on earth could benefit from DBT skills. (laughs) So, These other mental health concerns that DBT can be great for are addictions like food, sex, chemical substance addiction, mood disorders, including depression and anxiety, issues of impulse control, and other things. So behavioral and thought patterns that are often present in people that would respond well to DBT therapy are high and intense surges of emotion that come quickly and that often feel stubbornly slow in dissipating, perceiving the world as an unfriendly place where black and white thinking is the norm, stuckness in thought and action, repeating the same things over and over simply because there doesn't seem to be anything else to do, engaging in behaviors that can cause injury or suffering to yourself and others and struggling to stop those behaviors, and feeling overwhelmed by shame and anger. I know so many of us who struggle with BPD, CPTSD, and any other kind of complex trauma can really relate to these symptoms. At its core, DBT is a form of cognitive behavioral therapy, which is also known as CBT. And DBT emphasizes the importance of balancing validation and change, as well as the necessity to learn how to operate within the present moment, rather than just always being stuck and thinking about the past or the future. If you're anything like me, you really struggle with that. DBT incorporates multiple avenues for identifying and shifting behaviors that are problematic for an individual, cause a reduction in functioning, or impair the ability to live life effectively and with joy. It is a collaborative model and it emphasizes the importance of relationship, problem solving, and managing emotional trauma and crisis. DBT operates on the belief that all problem behaviors make perfect sense in the efforts of an individual to feel better. Many of these problem behaviors, however, only have short-term effectiveness in alleviating the suffering and don't address the underlying issues that produced the problem behaviors in the first place. So what does that look like? That could look like 
When a big emotion comes up, we turn to maybe smoking weed because it helps us numb our emotions. And yes, smoking weed might be the quote-unquote problem behavior, but DBT aims to dive under the surface to find out what's underneath these behaviors. Now, we talk about so much more than just DBT in this episode, but I wanted you to get a feel for what this modality of treatment is and how it's used in the treatment of BPD and other forms of complex trauma. Now, before I get into today's interview, I want to give a huge shout out to Raphael, who is my first $65 a month patron on Patreon. Thank you so much for your support. It means the world to me. We are now having a thriving community on Patreon. All of my patrons are absolutely amazing. There's 34 of you now. Every single day, I am posting on Patreon lots of additional resources, so If you want direct interaction with me, you want even more than the podcast provides, consider being a patron on Patreon. So if you'd like to join the community there, you can go to patreon.com slash back from the borderline. Join us. It's a pretty cool community. Also, if you're not following the podcast on Instagram, go ahead and do that. Our handle on Instagram is at BPDT, that's BPDTEA. And if you can, please, 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 if you enjoy the podcast and you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Audible, write a review. It really helps and it helps other people find the podcast. It helps them understand the value in it. And I would really appreciate you doing that for me. Also, please continue sharing the podcast with your partners, your friends, your therapists. I am getting an overwhelming amount of messages from all of you, especially people who are saying they're sharing the podcast with their therapists. Their therapists are loving it, and then their therapists are sharing it with other people with BPD. So this is how we make change. This is how you can help other people as well. So please continue spreading the word. It really means the world to me. So without further ado, let's roll that intro and we will jump right into my interview with the amazing Dana Haynes. This podcast is not a substitute for professional treatment of BPD. I am not a psychiatrist, a therapist, or a doctor. I'm a human being sharing the highs and lows of my own recovery. Expect mature subject matter. Probably put the kids away. Above all else, this is a place for getting real, so triggering topics will come up. All right, if you're into it, let's get into it. You have entered Back from the Borderline, the place to be for the tea on all things BPD. I'm your host, Molly. After my diagnosis, I decided to make it my life's mission to become an emotional grown-up. This marked the beginning of a journey of self-discovery and research that resulted in massive mindset shifts. The more I learned, the less control my BPD symptoms had over my life. On this podcast, I'll be serving up all the tips, tricks, and vulnerable conversations you'll need to deepen and expand your own recovery process as you join me in mine. You are not alone. Together, let's design a life free of BPD. All right, time to settle in and get ready to absorb today's episode. 
everyone. Welcome to the podcast. I am here with Dana and we'll start things off by having Dana introduce yourself and your qualifications so that the listeners can have a better understanding of you and what you do. Sure. I'm glad to be on your podcast today. Um, And I am a licensed clinical social worker. So I'm licensed in New Jersey and in Pennsylvania. And I'm a GBT therapist. So I mostly work with clients who have emotion dysregulation, PTSD, chronic PTSD, um, BPD diagnoses, but sometimes not necessarily. So um, I mostly work with teenagers and young adults, um, but, you know, whole age range. Absolutely. So I, we mentioned this a little bit in our intro together that when we, before we started recording the podcast, but I've had some mental health professionals on the podcast before they have mostly been clinical psychologists. So can you describe to the listeners, the difference between a clinical psychologist and a licensed clinical social worker so that they have an understanding of kind of the two different, how, what you do is different to what a licensed clinical psychologist would do? Right. Great question. So, I mean, I think we could do the same thing, essentially, if if a clinical psychologist is practicing as a therapist and a licensed clinical social worker is practicing as a therapist, right, we're doing the the same thing. The difference really is in the training. So for, for example, uh, master's in social work is two years and uh, depending on the state you're in, like, you know, a few thousand hours of clinical work. Um, under supervision, and then you apply for for a license to practice um, therapy independently. And so with clinical psychology, you do, you can do some of the work as a clinical social worker before you're fully licensed, as long as you're under supervision, but clinical psychology is it's a doctorate, so it's just a longer training. Um, but ultimately, it's the same. If you want to be a therapist, they're just different paths to the same goal. Um, so Sometimes I, I do the same work as a clinical psychologist. Um, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. What was it that made you want to get into social work and helping people? Have you always wanted to do this? And like, tell me a little bit about how you got into this work. Yeah. So actually I majored in English in college and I worked in corporate communications for a few years. And I just always had this like nagging feeling of like, I'm not living in alignment with something. So just something felt really off. And so I find myself, you know, on a, on a therapist couch and I'm trying to figure out what to do with my life. And, you know, I think it had in the back of my head been an idea to pursue mental health. I'd always been like searching for a way to just feel better and to, to like self-actualize. Like it's just, it's always been an interest of mine. Um, so, you know, in, in therapy is really where I figured out, like, if I could do anything and money wasn't the issue, like, I think I would want to be a therapist. I think I was just too young at like 22 or 18 to decide that for myself. Um, I never thought like I would, what kind of wisdom could I offer is kind of how I felt. But um, over time, I felt more confidence around that. So, well, that is yeah. certainly the case, isn't it? You know, <laughs> wisdom comes with age. And I it think does. a lot of people especially those of us that struggle with BPD and CPTSD, which are the Mm -hmm. primary listeners of this podcast. Mm -hmm. I remember when I was in my teens and 20s, I just looked at people who I felt like had their shit together, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. And I just thought that's never going to be me, right? Or because there's something wrong with me. But in reality, 
wisdom comes with age and you really start figuring stuff out and becoming more comfortable with yourself as you get older, as long as you are prioritizing your, your mental health recovery, because otherwise you stay stuck. And that's what I realized for myself where I was getting to be 29, 30. And I just was going, you know what? I was seeing a lot of the people that I respected kind of moving on and not taking things as personally as I did. And then I was like, okay, I need to work on me. It's not the rest of the world's problem. It's my problem. And I'm kind of keeping myself stuck. Yeah. So my question for you is in your work, you know, where did DBT come in? Because you reached out to me initially a while back on the Instagram page. And for those of you that don't follow the page on Instagram, it's BPDT, that's B-P-D-T-E-A. But Dana reached out to me and she said that she'd love to come on and talk about DBT and and BPD in general. So where did your passion for working with people with BPD start and how did DBT certification come into play there? So actually, and this is kind of sounds corny, and I think my um, supervisor has actually said this as well. I feel like DBT found me rather than vice versa. Like I was never like, oh, I want to work in DBT or I want to work with people with BPD. It was something that I fell into because I was working at a community mental health agency. And I just felt like everyone was stuck. Like all my clients were really stuck. It was mostly clients who had chronic PTSD. And then there was just an absence in my community mental health agency. Someone had quit and and my supervisor was like, can you leave the DBT groups? And I was like, "I, I don't even know what that is. And she's like, just read this book. And that was my first inkling too, that like people... A lot of people don't understand DBT. That's what I was just about to say. Like, no wonder so many of my listeners reach out to me and they have not found DBT effective because what I'm realizing when I speak to mental health professionals is like they have been thrown into something without a lot of preparation. And so, which you, I'm sure, thank God you like loved DBT and you decided to throw yourself into it. But someone that went like someone with BPD that really needed help could literally end up in a group with someone leading it that has no idea what the fuck they're doing. Absolutely. And honestly, that was, (laughs) that was me. Like I was like literally reading like a chapter and it wasn't even the official manual that was handed to me. And I mean, I was just like, what is going on? And, and it was sort of like, oh, it's just teach them some skills. And like, it just, is it that what the messaging out. you received was basically? Yeah. And I was, wow. I was not given any information. And I was just like, you know, again, like, and this is where we all have a wise mind. We all have intuition. And like, mm-hmm. I wish when I was younger and I wish all my clients who don't yet believe it, like we let everyone could know and really feel that we all have a wise mind and have the intuition and to follow it. Like when we get that gut feeling, like it's there. Mm. And I just had that inclination then like something doesn't feel right about this. So this is where I started pursuing my own research around it and realizing like this is whole complicated treatment. It is not just teaching some skills. Um, so, you know, I was definitely not doing my, my best work then, but it was the thing that led me to my next job it wasn't that I was pursuing DBT at that point, but it just, this job opened and it was DBT for adolescents at an intensive outpatient program. Mm. And I just had a DBT background and then they were just asking me about it. And I was just applying to be an adolescent therapist. I wasn't applying for DBT, but they asked me questions about DBT. And I was like, oh, I think it's amazing for teenagers. I mean, what teenager doesn't need DBT? Like we all- What person doesn't need DBT, right? I think we're living in a world where there is- 
massive emotion regulation issues. And that is not just with people with borderline personality disorder. I know for me, I had two parents who may or may not have been clinically BPD, but they had huge emotion regulation issues and took me to therapy to quote unquote, fix me, the, the identified identified patient. patient. Yeah. Yeah, Like as the, the, the person, the problem of the family, when in reality, when the therapist asked my dad, like more about what they may be doing, then it was like, Oh, no more therapy for us because do you, well, first, actually I want to like, I could just go and riff, riff, riff. But one thing that you mentioned that I actually would love to ask is you talked about wise mind. and our intuition. Can you talk a little bit to the listeners about what wise mind is and what that concept is in dialectical behavior therapy and what it means to you? Yeah, absolutely. So wise mind in in, in CBT is uh, a state of mind and a way of engaging with the world from a really centered and settled part of yourself. And so it can sound really abstract, but there's a way to get to it. And in, in CBT, you learn different exercises to help you get through it get to it. It could be as simple as like, I'm going to inhale wise and I'm going to exhale mind. And, you know, we do this with our eyes open a lot of the time, right? Because I might need to do this at family dinner. We all probably need to do this over the holidays, right? Like sitting with family members who might be triggering our emotions are, you know, stirring up. Like I might need to get into a settled calm place so that I can interact wisely, effectively in a way that's going to get me to my goals, which maybe maybe my goal is as simple as like peace at that dinner. Or maybe my goal is like, I don't want to act out of the uh, another state of mind called emotion mind and lash out because then I'm going to feel guilty and beat myself up about it later and feel like I'm out of control and potentially damage the relationship. So, you know, it, it's a way of kind of getting really grounded and centered and acting from a place of where you're factoring in your emotions, but you're also factoring in the facts of the situation and um, and from a really rooted and like calm place. And it's the answer you always get. Like if you're an emotion mind, like you might feel like, you know what, I'm, I'm quitting the shop. Right. But, in, and then you calm down and you're like, you know what, I'm not going to quit. And so wise mind is like, you get the same answer over and over again. When you're in wise mind, it's going to be a more consistent feeling. Whereas emotion mind might like fluctuate and vacillate. That's a really good description. And, you know, for me, my own personal BPD journey has taken mm-hmm. me down a really spiritual route. And mm-hmm. so I have been reading about mysticism, about mm-hmm. paganism, about Buddhism, and even just very like uh, like Catholicism at a higher level, like, you know, like, and what you recognize is how much a lot of religion, spirituality share. They're all very, very similar. And I just read about in in like an occult book, right? I'm reading some like really witchy shit right now. I just got (laughs) done reading another book, like all like by this Catholic priest. So I'm really diving in because I want to know everything there is about spirituality because it's really informed my recovery a lot because I struggled with things like DBT because I experienced it in the way that you were thrown into it, which is like, just do these fucking skills. And I'm like, what? (laughs) I need to know why. I need to understand why I'm doing this because otherwise it means nothing to me. Just as I think a lot of therapists that maybe aren't more trauma-informed because if I were a therapist, for example, I'm not. I feel like I've said before in a podcast, I feel like I have an honorary psychology degree at this point because I, it's all I do is just read about this stuff. But 
we have to get to the root cause of things. And it's like, why are we doing things? Because once I finally understood why I was doing things, I went, oh, that makes a lot of sense. But circling back to this book I'm reading, they're talking about this exercise called the middle pillar, right? It's a Mm. meditation. And it talks about um, imagining yourself having one pillar on one side and one pillar on the other. And one is like Mm. severity and one is like um, maternal nature or something. And then you envision yourself coming to the center, right? Oh my gosh. Wise mind. (laughs) Which which is wise mind. And then, you know, um, the Lord's prayer is like um, the father, the son, and the Holy spirit, or for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And it comes back, like even crossing yourself is basically centering yourself. Right. So um, I was raised Catholic. So it's just like, for me, this is so, and then I'm also doing a lot of uh, research about the tarot and the tarot is thinking about yourself as like on this hero's journey that, so that we're all, and it's all about balancing your emotions with your thoughts and coming to the center. So what do we get from this is like, this is something that is ancient. There's a reason why we, it is so important for everyone in their mental health is to understand that like, we cannot react from a place of emotions only because emotions are important. That's why you have people like Mark Zuckerberg, who's like a fucking sociopath because he only reacts with with logic, right? Right. You can tell that these mass corporations are not thinking about emotions and empathy. So it's like we must put mix our emotions and our logic and make every decision with both of those together. Right. And it's it's larger than the sum of its parts too, yes. in a sense. So that is yeah. it's so so right. And I was just on Instagram live last night with a bunch of the followers and I was just saying and they we were laughing about it because something I actually don't think that's talked about is like people with BPD what you hear mostly is like self-harm and chronic thoughts of suicide. And I feel like there's such a stereotypical version of like someone that's cutting themselves and threatening to kill themselves. And that's the only image of BPD. And I'm not saying that that doesn't exist because it's certainly a thing, but something I don't think is talked about is like really just impulsive behaviors. Like Mm -hmm. for me, that manifested not as self-harm classically. It was I'm going to go cut my hair all off today. I'm going to go dye my hair black. I'm going to um, go get a piercing or a tattoo randomly, or I'm going to go sleep with someone, right? Mm-hmm. And it was, I need to do this now. And now what I've started doing is going, okay, I don't allow myself to do anything right away. If mm-hmm. I want to still do it in, for example, say for instance, I want to dye my hair. I will say, okay, if I want to do this still in two months, then I'll allow myself to do it. What's that doing? It's allowing me to do, okay, I have an emotion. I'm going to put the logic and I'm going to practice self-like reflection and then I'm going to take the action. And I'm kind of just going off on a tangent on that, but it's just, I wanted to paint that picture of wise mind for people because it can come across as this like really esoteric spiritual thing and it can't make sense, but that's what wise mind looks like. It's like, think about logic, think about your emotion and then feel the power that comes with going, I have control to make a decision because what happens with those of us with BPD is when you act on those impulses, we have shame spirals afterwards. Mm-hmm. And that is such an underlying piece of BPD is, is that shame. shame is is function so much at the heart of of this disorder. 
And can you explain a little bit about in your experience with your clients and like what that toxic shame looks like and how it manifests? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I see it a lot as self-loathing and this feeling of just being so broken and damaged and unlovable and unfixable and which often manifests in suicidality and that, that chronic feeling of just like needing to escape or that this is not something that you can fix. Um, and this is kind of a little bit of a tangent, but it's, for me, it's one of the hardest things to work with because I feel like I just want to be like, no, like, no, 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 I don't see it that way. But that is also Mm -hmm. so deeply invalidating too, to someone. So it's this really hard, um, dance almost of like validating that this is your experience, but also like trying to help move a person away from that because I, I don't want to force my beliefs on someone, but also over time, I spent a lot of time with my clients as a DBT therapist. You know, it's not just one hour, right? I do phone coaching, you know, it's, and it's very, a, a piece of DBT is of being validating is being radically genuine. So like, I'm just me, I'm not like anyone other than, than who I actually am in my everyday life. Obviously I'm not going to like put all my fucking problems on all my clients, mm-hmm. but I, I am, they, they know me my, they, they know my actual like essence. I, I like to think. And so, um, I just lost my train of thought. What oh, was no, I saying? You're, <laughs> no, it's fine. You are just riffing on like how to manage those, those thoughts mm. of toxic shame. And, you know, while you were talking about that, another question came up for me is when I, and you say you work a lot with adolescents and teens mm. mm-hmm. and, when I was a teenager and even into my uh, three years ago, you know, before I really pursued my cover seriously, it really felt these things feel like the end of the world. And yeah. they they genuinely do feel like the end of the world. Like I remember mm-hmm. when I talked about it on one of my splitting series episodes where this guy that I was dating when I was 29, he was an actor in LA and like he had an amazing house. Right. And so we'd only been seeing each other for, I swear to God, probably like two months, like maybe, and and maybe like six dates between then mm-hmm. I had already planned out our life together. I had already like, it, I was like, okay, this is going to be it. And he's going to save me because he's rich. And like, then mm-hmm. I can be a hot mess and I won't have to worry about myself. Like I was like really planning all this shit out. He dumped me and looking, of course I like made him into this evil human being because, but in reality, he just reflected that he wasn't ready for a relationship quite yet. And quite frankly, I was probably a lot, like I was really into him and he was probably going, Whoa, this has not been very long. Hmm. And so he called me and did the right thing and just kind of literally, it's actually pretty good. He didn't ghost me. He called me and really was like brave enough to be like, Hey, this isn't working for me. I wish you all the best. You're an amazing person. And of course I like ball on the phone to him, which mm-hmm. I'm sure when he got off the phone, he was like, yep, definitely made the right decision. Oh. No, I mean, I'm just being yeah. honest. Like yeah. if, it, if the shoe were on the other foot, I would have been like, Jesus, like we've only been dating for like six dates and you're like losing your shit in the middle of like North Hollywood. Like, and whoa. if you're imagining your wedding and being saved yeah. and that happens, it's like, it is the end of the world because you're responding yes. not to the thing. It's not the thing that's the trigger. It's the the interpretations about the thing. Exactly. And that event literally spiraled me into a suicidal ideation. And Mm -hmm. that is what led me into my first psychiatrist appointment, right? It wasn't about him. It was more about how much I was throwing my identity into other people and my worth into other people. And that really 
what woke me up where now reflecting back, I'm going in wise mind. I'm going, Molly, if you would have been in wise mind at that time, you would have been like, okay, you've been seeing him for, you've only met this guy six times. He actually also probably had a Coke problem and (laughs) never, ever been with someone that went to the bathroom so many times on a dinner (laughs) date, let me tell you. So he definitely was not a good match for me, okay? It would Mm -hmm. not have been a good long-term match. And it was not the end of the world, right? Right. But the problem is I felt like it was the end of the world. I really, really did. And so – That's why it's so important for those of us with BPD. I ended up in a psychiatrist office and what did he do? He said, A, you're not crazy enough to have have borderline personality disorder. Oh my God. It's it's incurable. You don't want to have it. So I'm going to treat you. Exactly. Right. Um, It's incurable. So I'm going to treat you for uh, bipolar two. And so I ended up on like six different psychiatric drugs and- wasn't told about withdrawal or anything mm-hmm. like that at the time. But what, what, well, the piece that was missing there was I didn't have a medical health, a mental health professional that said, Molly, like you're not connected to your intuition. You are not, are you meditating every day? Have you ever thought of your higher self? And like, have you dug into like the concept of individuation? And I feel like, mm-hmm. I really feel like mental health has been so dumbed down to like, do these skills. And it's almost like they think people are too stupid to understand these concepts or something like Dana, why in the fuck is it? So why is this system so bad? (laughs) I think part of it, and this is probably a judgment on my part, but I feel like people need to do their own work. Like, yeah, that is part of it. But how do they know what to look up? That's the thing, right? Like I had to really go deep on a journey to find these concepts. And it's like, yeah, we should be teaching these concepts in school. Like oh, yeah. kids should be learning about their intuition and their um, their higher self and their ego and all of these concepts from a very young age. I've talked about it before in the podcast, but my partner Zaz, he grew up surrounded by Buddhist monks used to like stay in their house because Whoa. his mom, his, his uh, grandparents worked for like various different charities and they lived in Nepal and India. And so because Zaz was exposed to these concepts from a really young age and was around adults that kind of told him like, you're not your emotions. Like you are not like, you know, you're not a bad person, like sit with your feelings. He still struggles with mental health, just like all of us do, but he doesn't spin out and become so disconnected as I did because I was just spiritually starved. I didn't understand these concepts. Yeah. So it's like, it's easy to say people should do their own work, but it's like, how do we battle that when it's like, they don't even know where to start? Well, I guess I'm actually not talking about clients. I'm talking about therapists. Oh, there you go. Yeah. So that wouldn't that people, be nice? <laughs> yeah. I think that's it. So I think that's the issue, right? Cause if you're going to a therapist, like you, are hoping for something. And and what you described is I have to go search these concepts out. And so for example, like I consider myself a DBT therapist, but I'm by no means like a zealot, like I of DBT only. Like I think that like whatever works for you works. And I don't think DBT yes, is the only like an way. individualized approach. Yeah, right? absolutely. Um, so I definitely, and I think the other, which I'm kind of jumping, but you know, DBT can also be judged by like, like my therapist is psychodynamic and she'll, you know, talk about how manualized DBT is. And, um, can you tell, talk about what you mean by manualized? 
sure. Like it's, it's a sort of like, there's a protocol to it, right? There's like, yeah. okay, it's this, this length of time and it's, it's these pieces, it's skilled group and it's a skill mm-hmm. and, and then it's individual therapy to help you increase skills use. And that's all true, but I, I'm by no means like, I don't think that I'm like a robotic therapist. I'm definitely not that. And, and part of, but I, I think it gets that kind of um, a reputation. I think also because it's, it's one of the treatments that has so much research back up, backed up behind it. Yes. So, but don't you think that there's research? Here's my, here's my thought. I feel like there's lots of research because it's so prescriptive. Like it's easy to measure the effectiveness of DBT because Marshall Linehan has set it up as such to literally be like, a plus B equals C. Are you killing yourself? Yes or no? Yeah. Tick. Okay. It's proven effective. Like, right? right. Like, right. That's where I just go like, okay. Yeah, of course. Like for example, a Jungian, anal- a Jungian analyst, for example, yeah. or a psychodynamic therapist is going to have a lot harder time saying that there's shit is, is proven by research because right. it doesn't fit in a fucking little box like DBT yeah. does. <laughs> yes. And I think she designed it that way. And when I'm actually doing DBT, it so resembles like my own, like the way my own therapist, her style, like she's my therapist model, right? Like I do yeah. copy her. And so there's so much of what I do that feels psychodynamic also, but I and can you talk of, to the uh, listeners too? Cause mm-hmm. I could geek out with you on this, but some of them are not as like into these subjects as me and I yeah. are. When we say that your um, your personal therapist is psychodynamic, is that like is she like very Freudian analysis vibes, or like what do you think is her inspiration? Like how does she approach therapy, and how would you compare psychodynamic therapy to DBT? So I would consider well, first she considers herself, and I do consider her as well. Of course, she identifies as a feminist therapist, so like her yeah. main lens is like feminist theory, mm-hmm. um, and but she also looks at like the family system and sort of the yeah. ways that like our relationships with our primary caregivers have shaped, you know, how we are um, compared to DBT. I mean, that's still relevant because one of the, the part of the heart of DBT is this idea of the biosocial model. So we have yeah. a temperament that interacts with an environment and it leads to different types of reactions and, and emotional dysregulation. So I think the, the difference in, in DBT is that I'm not going to like, when someone comes to me with a problem, I need to have a hierarchy because a lot of my clients are suicidal and are self-harming. And if I start, they might not have the skills to process what's happened to them yet. A, mm-hmm. B. So if I start opening that up, it, it might be harmful. Um, or the other piece of it is like, sort of like we need to like get you stabilized so that you're not so that you're alive so that we can work to deal with the family yeah, stuff. Right, right. That would be helpful. Being yeah. alive is always super helpful. Yeah. <laughs> and I say it like that in session. Yeah. I'd be like, I really want to talk about like this problem, like with this concert with your friends this weekend. But like, if you're dead, like we're, that's not going to matter. So like, yeah. let's hopefully resolve this issue with the, with the SI, with the suicidal ideation. Mm-hmm. And then we'll hopefully we'll have time to talk about the concert. So we have to do this hierarchy. All right, that's so actually so funny. It's like, would love to talk about this other this concert, but uh, you're and saying you want to die. Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of that's like what a lot of the beginnings of my session look like when I open up with a diary card. The other piece of DBT is my clients all have a diary card where they track their emotions and their thoughts, or sorry, emotions, behaviors, and you know, skills used, and and maybe what happened that day. 
And you know, I think that what I like about, and and I never, ever want it to come across, and I know you don't think this, but I never want it to come across to anyone that I'm like shitting on DBT because there's Mm. so much good in DBT. But what I love about what we're describing is like, there's just so much more to to everything. And, and I think that sometimes therapists are so set on their one way and it does them a disservice because when you're Mm -hmm. sitting with an individual in front of you. And Mm -hmm. you are a person that's passionate about mental health. You can be like, ooh, I'm hearing this about their childhood. So I could talk about family systems or, you know, like I can take Mm -hmm. more of like a gestalt, like individual approach. Mm -hmm. Like, and so I think that something that I'm seeing, at least from my experience in the mental health space is like, there seems to be a lot of mental health providers out there that don't have a real passion for the field. Like, Mm -hmm. because for me, I want to learn everything. Like I want to learn everything there is to know. And it's like you, so many, especially like my underprivileged listeners that are like, you know, going to just a NHS provider in the UK. That's just like, okay, robot. I know I am going to throw you into CBT and get you on an antidepressant. And it's like, CBT is not proven at all to be very effective for people with uh, emotion regulation disorders and trauma. And stuff like that, because you're not, you need to get to the root cause. Right. So my next question for you is, so you, you and I discussed some questions like via email, and I would love to get into a couple of these because I, I think they're just so great. You mm-hmm. said you'd love to discuss pejorative words like attention seeking or manipulative and help to reframe these. First, mm-hmm. can you talk about what does a pejorative mean? for my listeners. Yeah. Like a, a, basically a negative connotation or a stigma around, um, someone's behavior. So like, there's mm-hmm. a lot of negative words that are used to describe people with BPD, right? What did that, the psychiatrist say to you? That yeah. He was like, not you're crazy not crazy enough? enough. And he also said that I'm like too high functioning. That's another oh, thing. Like, you I, know, that like, word too. it's yeah. the worst, isn't it? Because yeah. He saw me for literally five minutes. He doesn't yeah. know I I can actually not be very functional in my life. Right. And when I was wanting to kill myself the day before I was seeing him, I was not very fucking functional at all. Right. <laughs> but right. I can and- present very put together. I have a mask that I put on and I can come across. And I've heard this by other mental health professionals that I've chatted with on the podcast. When people with BPD go into a therapist, we want to impress. We want to mm-hmm. look our best. And that means that we can maybe not, that's why someone has to meet with you and talk to you for more than 15 fucking minutes. Right. And have you heard of apparent competence? No. (gasps) All right. I got to send you this whole graph of like the dialectical dilemmas because they're amazing. So apparent competence, what you described as the mask, that's very common. But what happens is then it's not accurate expression of emotion. So people don't know that you're suffering. Yes. And, and that was probably reinforced in your environment, right? You're given props for it. You're like, oh, you're so high functioning or look mm-hmm. at you, you're so put together. And so that gets reinforced and there's no, and then that further shuts you down. You're like, I yep. really can't show that I'm vulnerable. So yeah, no, apparent competence is something to super look out for um, and help and, and to, to be on the lookout for. It's interesting that you bring that up too. And we'll talk more about like uh, manipulation and, and mm. attention seeking because I think that's something people talk about a lot. But I did post the other day about quiet BPD, right? Mm-hmm. And I know quiet BPD and high functioning BPD, these are terms that are actually thrown around a lot, but they're not in the DSM. They're not an official diagnosis. 
But what I like about the fact that quiet BPD is talked about is what I, because no one person experiences BPD in the same way. And there is a whole subsection of people who, and what I don't like about quiet BPD is because I don't think everyone gets it right. Because mm. what I experience, I identify with quiet BPD a lot. Um, I think that I would, ch- I would change the definition a little bit because I'm quiet BPD around everyone except the closest people to me, right? So like, Interesting. Yeah. for example, people at work will never, like if people at work knew what I was capable of, like screaming, throwing full tantrums, like if I told people at work that that was a side of me, they would literally never fucking believe you ever. Yeah. Yeah. But my boyfriend, my mother, my yeah. sister, I let out my biggest emotions and this is no longer the case because mm-hmm. I I have worked on myself but prior mm-hmm. to to being aware of my traumas like you other people in in regular society would see me as someone who has getting straight A's and um, is the life of the party and mm-hmm. like never losing my shit and just like oh wow she's just quote unquote, perfect or stuck Mm -hmm. up or whatever. Mm -hmm. Right. Like I got that a lot when I was younger, but then to my parents, I will like fucking scream and throw myself down on the ground and like all sorts of shit. And so I think quiet BPD to me is more like having a mask on when you are outside, but everybody's mask slips off occasionally, right? Like, right. I don't think very many people are completely inward. Some every once in a while, it's going to be like, psh, like I think about it like a pressure cooker. Like it's gonna, mm-hmm. it's gonna explode a little bit here and there. What is your take on like quiet BPD? Are you seeing some of your clients that kind of like seem like they are more inward acting? So I, I think if, if I were to describe it, I don't really typically use the terminology quiet. I think of it as internalizing versus externalizing. Yeah. Um, I love externalizing. Like I just, I love it. Like just, you know, the sort of personalities that are just like uh, explosive. Like I love getting that like under wraps and like, get, I guess that, that might sound, come off. I don't know how that sounds under wraps, but it's sort of like oh, yeah. helping people like, you know, manage that in a way that yes. like gets them to their goals. Um, that's like, I, I enjoy that, um, probably a lot, but I find that most of my clients are a combination of internalizing and externalizing, and it depends on the context. Yeah. So it's very, it's context-based and that's the same thing with like a parent confidence is like in certain contexts, you are so confident. And then in others, it's like, and I think this is true for all humans too, right? Like this is a spectrum. Like I might be much more confident in my work life than I am like dealing with certain relatives, right? Like it's just, it's going to depend on the context. So this is a human thing too. Um, it just matters the extent to which it's really like kind of impacting your, your life and your functioning. Um, but so quiet BPD, I think of it as people who are internalizing more and taking it out more on themselves through Mm -hmm. like self-harm, things like that. Um, and then externalizing might, you might see more like lashing out, um, a lot of like, like anger outbursts, things like that. That's super helpful context. So we can circle back to the attention seeking and manipulative behaviors, right? Those are terms that are thrown around a lot when you Google BPD for the first time and you're like, oh, and even mental health professionals, I have spoken to many, many young mental health professionals such as you who talk 
about seeing older mental health professionals specifically saying like, ugh, it's another BPD person. They're just, they're doing it for attention. Like literally this is coming from mental health professionals. Or she's so borderline eye roll. Like that, I, I, and and, and I, I, I hate to to say it because it, I don't want to harm anyone listening. And, but that is also, maybe it's even validating because I'm going to be honest, like, you know, the, the shame people are experiencing, it's, it's not fair and they're shamed a lot, like in our society and by our own, like mental health system, a lot of the time, which is why I do as much as I said, I'm not like a zealot for any one particular theory. Like I do love what DBT gets is like, we're not, there's, there's, it removes that stigma from, from BPD. It's like, it's your human being like first and foremost, and your behavior makes sense based on what you've been through. And, and, and a lot of people though, and this is a whole other, you know, line we could go down, but, you know, think that they don't have trauma. And, and when we look under the hood, there's always some way in which there, there was some kind of experience that invalidated them. And that's all I'm so glad to hear you say that because I can't tell you the amount of people that will comment on my Instagram posts and they're like, I don't, I had a normal childhood. Like everything, uh, I, all my basic needs were met. I was perfectly fine and I have BPD. So, and then they go say, they're like, so it was, it's just genetic. It's just my brain chemistry. And to that, I call bullshit every single fucking time. And here's why, like, just for me, myself, I'm 32 years old. So I'm like classic millennial in my lifetime, 9-11 happened when I was 10. You know, mm-hmm. I walked into my my school classroom where I was watching people jumping out of the, the Twin Towers. Mm-hmm. And then my mom came and picked me up that day. And I remember going to my mom and my mom came to pick us up from school because like everyone's parents did some like that day, like they let parents come get their kids if they wanted to. And I remember looking at my mom that day and I was like, mom, like, is everything going to be okay? And my mom was like, I don't know. Like my mom was terrified and witnessing my caregivers not know what the fuck was going on. Like that's classic big T trauma, right? Like where it's like, that's traumatic. I grew up in the age of AOL instant messenger where girls were coming on with different screen names and bullying me. And like literally late in the night where my parents had no idea what was going on. I told my parents I was terrified of dying and they said, don't think about that. Like, but on the outside- I was in a white picket fence household where all my basic needs were met. And I could be one of those people that said, I have no trauma. My childhood was fine. But it's like, I think that's what you're describing by look under the hood. There's always shit there. There's always. And it can often just be a mismatch between parent and child. And that was my case. Yeah. Yep. And, and, and I love the analogy of like, you know, a rose in a tulip garden, like it's different both are beautiful and it's just, it's different types of care. Right. So it, mm. some, so a rose might not thrive if it's raised the way like the tulips are, right. It might start wilting and, you know, die even like, so I think it's, it's really about like that mismatch that is so painful on both sides too. So I work with some yes. amazing parents and they're struggling and they don't know what to do. And by the time they're, they're, they're coming to me, like a lot of damage has already been done. So it's hard. And and so I have like a lot of, and I have a mindfulness practice myself to help me like always, you know, channel that, 
the empathy the best I, I can because it, it is hard too and it's easy also to start taking sides too and, and yes. play the blame game and it's not and I though. think we do that I did it for years I've mm-hmm. even done it on this podcast because everyone knows that listening to this podcast I'm on my own journey and there was an episode where I just said I don't know if I can have a relationship with my parents and since then I have really come a long way where I'm realizing that my parents did the best they could with what they had they love me, but mm-hmm. it the rose in a tulip garden analogy is just so perfect because my sister, for example, she does not perceive our childhood to be a complete hot mess, right? Uh, she is a completely different human than me. Um, I consider myself to just be more just big, emotional. I needed a lot of cuddling. I needed a lot mm. of reassurance. I I consider myself to just be a highly intense person. I don't know if you've ever heard of Amy Lowe, but she mm-hmm. does this. You would love her. She does a podcast called Eggshell Transformations, and I mm. recommend anyone listening to it. She literally does her podcast for highly intense people is what she calls them, like emotional huh. and highly intense people. And her background, you would geek out over like all the training she's done because it's just so unique. But I absolutely identify with being that. My mom, for example, is a very analytical, very uh-huh. inward person. Yep. She she did things for me. Like she would help me with a project and do anything, like stay up late to do things for me. But But when I needed cuddles, like I remember reaching out to cuddle my mom when I was little and she'd be like, ooh, honey, don't. Like Like, do you know, I don't like being touched. And I've said this on the podcast before my memory of like interaction with my mom was like holding onto her finger because that's like all she could really deal with being touched. Yeah. And so like, I literally used to like pet my mom's fingernail, like for self-soothing because my mom would not want me to touch her. And that was horrible for me. And yeah. Tell me. Can I ask you, do you, do you ever have like or through your journey, have you experienced like flashbacks of that same feeling, but not the visual, like in relationships? Cause I find that that's a big thing too. Like, yeah. Uh, I mean, I'd be interested to hear you describe what you mean by that, but yeah. Fuck. Yeah. <laughs> Where like the, I, I yeah. Yeah, tell me to can like elaborate. Feeling, I'm thinking of like the feeling flooding back to you, even though it's not like your mom saying no, honey, no, but like in a relationship, like getting that same flooding of helplessness of, of emotional abandonment, like happening. Like, I feel like that's what floods back for a lot of people. Absolutely. I love Pete Walker a lot and I'm sure. Yeah. I was like, I'm obsessed with him and he talks about emotional flashbacks and like the abandonment melange or whatever, like, yes. And I ironically have always been attracted to partners who are not very cuddly and not very emotional. And the irony of it all is, Dana, is that I actually would go on dates with guys and if they were like really emotional and really like, oh my God, wanted to tell me how much they liked me, I would be like, ew. Yeah. And then I'd be super attracted to people that I felt like I had to like beg for crumbs of their love from. And now I'm like, I'm with a partner now who is incredible human being, but he's not a very touchy person. He is, is more of an acts of service kind of love Mm -hmm. person. He, he will talk to me for hours on end about my feelings and be there for me. But he tells me, he's like, Molly, if you want a, a cuddle, you just have to tell me, like, come over and take it. And I experienced that 
I am terrified, I think, to make myself vulnerable to. So I'll sit there, Dana, and be like, no one loves me. No one loves me. Look at him sitting over there on the couch. He doesn't even want to fucking cuddle me. And I know that if I, I can't believe I have to ask for it. He Mm -hmm. should just do Mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. Right. But no, I'm realizing that's not, that's not accurate, you know? And so when I tell him, and so what then happens is I end up exploding at him. I hold all this in for three months at a time and then I'll explode at him and be like, you never cuddle me. You never. And then he's like, well, why don't you ask me? Like, why don't you come and take the cuddles? And then I will realize, oh, like, it's just not in my nature to come out and like do that. Right. Right. And when we let go though, of that feeling that they should know, right. Yes. We let go of that, that righteousness, then we can actually get our needs met. Yes. So, can you talk yeah. a bit about, and I know you're, I don't want to be, I want to be respectful of your time, but what do you mean by the righteousness? Like righteous anger, like feeling like, like it's that's huge. this way, right. Or like it should be another way. And that like, like sort of like, this is a DBT concept too, I guess like radical acceptance, right? Like not fighting with reality. Like it should, maybe in an ideal world, sure. But that's not where we live. (laughs) Do you know about magical thinking, right? Have you heard of this concept? Yeah, yeah, Well, well, I don't know if you've heard of her, but she's called the crappy childhood fairy on YouTube. No, no, She's fucking awesome. She's basically- you should. She's she's so great and she does everything on CPTSD and she yeah. talks about magical thinking and it's exactly what you're saying where she's saying yeah. like this is how it should be and and it's basically and I did this too where you're with a guy for example and you're like one day he's going to learn to love me and one day it's going to be better and I know it and it's yeah. like and I think a lot of us with BPD really struggle with that magical thinking aspect. We don't want to live in reality. Right. And that really takes our power away. And right. righteous anger was a thing for me. I yeah. really was fucking convinced that the world was out to get me, that the world was full of scary people that were fucking me over. All my ex-boyfriends were narcissists. <laughs> yeah. No, they weren't. They were just, and sure, maybe they had narcissistic maybe characteristics, yeah. but also so do I. We all have some narcissistic characteristics. Yeah. I think each of us in our daily life it's very rare that one of us has encountered a true malignant narcissist. Like Like NPD, like the, yeah. Donald Trump, probably malignant narcissist, right? I would say- Can't diagnose him, but a lot of visible traits. Very visible traits. But again, yeah, who knows? I don't know. I haven't been in a relationship with Donald Trump. Maybe he's the kindest, most empathetic person behind the scenes. Doubt it. But again- I can say that you're, I'm not a mental health professional, so, (laughs) but righteous anger circling back away from Donald, far away from Donald Trump, righteous anger was a thing I really struggled with. And I was just projecting all of my problems onto other people. And I think Mm. if there's one thing we can really end on is just going like, look inward, Mm. all of your answers, right? Lie within. And the chances are that your life can radically improve if you realize that you actually control your external environment. You control your reactions. You can control the next steps that you decide to take. You may be in a really shitty position, but it's like you have the power to not make extreme decisions about things. You can take logical next steps. I think especially as an adult, that's true. I think it is hard for teens too who don't have as much control but yeah. I, I like what you're saying because I think 
one of the, I think, most challenging things, you know, that I encounter is like willfulness, right? Like a refusal. And whenever there's willfulness, though, there's a fear there. There's a threat. And there's a fear maybe that, you know, if I get help, it won't work. So I really, if I could, you know, change one thing, I think it would be like that people just could hold hope that there's always Mm. hope for things to get better and for, you know, your life to feel like it's worth living. And I think that people are so burnt out sometimes by tons of therapy that doesn't work or being misunderstood. Or what the definition of working even is. Yes, that too. Managing your expectations around that is so important. Yeah. It's like, because I really do feel like people come into therapy and I wish also that more therapists would say, like start off sessions of being like, what does success look like for you? I work in software, Dana. And I literally, every time I meet with a client, the first question I say to them is like, what does success look like for you? If this, because I know what this software is supposed to do in my eyes, but what did you want it to do? And a lot of times they will say something that's like, not even fucking close to what I can do. And I'll be like, you know what? Let's figure out how we can meet in the middle and like how we can, right? Because if you're going into therapy and you're going, I think a lot of people literally go, I have big emotions, fix me. I'm broken. And I want you to make me happy all the time. I was just going to say, that's the biggest one, right? And so, and, and I think, and what I love what you do with your software clients is like, you take an interest in what the person wants. And I think that's really important for a therapist to do. Like my goals are not like your goals have to be your goals. I help you get to, to them. And if I can, right. And I have to be honest and know and observe my own limits around that. So for example, I was talking to a client like kind of recently about, you know, this desire to be happy, which I can totally validate and understand. And when we really looked under the surface there, well, how often do you think you should feel happy? Cause happy is just an emotion, right? Well, mm. I want to be happy all the time. Like, well, how about like join the club that? yeah like all of us would love that again magical thinking ideal world yes. we don't live there so you know what if you know and this is a suicidal client too so i'm like mm. so if you're not happy 100 percent of the time life is not worth living well, can we negotiate that a little bit so we were yes. in the process of a negotiation so um we settled around okay if you can help me get to like 50 60 percent of the time i'm like all right let's see if we can manage, manage that. Let's see where we, we go. And maybe we might need to renegotiate. Um, and even just yeah. the, even just saying like, make me happy 60% of the time, right? Like, it's like, how have we gotten here? I was just saying in my IG live last night where I was going it without sadness, happiness yeah. literally could not exist. Do you see what I'm saying? Like we have to be sad sometimes in order to be happy. Otherwise we would be existing. If these emotions, these big, like these waves of things did not exist within us, we would all just be like these like catatonic blobs. Like, right. And each emotion serves a biological purpose. So our emotions are all hardwired. So sadness serves a function. These emotions, emotions are supposed to help us with motivation, communication, information, giving us info. And it's, Yes, sometimes we need to check the facts on the info, but mm-hmm. you know it, it's important. We can't shut down those systems yes. in our bodies. What we can change is our secondary emotions, our reactions to these emotions, right? Yes. I feel sad and then that panics me. Well, what if I can change my relationship to my feelings? Like that's a huge part. And I don't, you know, I don't know that that's like a DBT skill exactly. I guess it's non-judgment. Really. It's just a human um, skill, isn't it? Yeah, like it's yeah, just, yeah. It's it is just, I think that someone um, from, you know, maybe like more of an Eastern practice, often yeah. they look over here at the West and they're going, 
why the fuck do you see symptoms or, or sorry, emotions as symptoms? Why are 100%. you pathologizing emotions? Because they are literally just, they, they grow up thinking about them just as these waves within them that they surf and they accept and they sit with and they know that they're not forever. And they know here in the West, we literally feel depressed and we think this is going to be my permanent state. So the next step is I'm going to go get a pill to fix that. And it's, that's where we've it's gone wrong. Very, very Western. I agree. Yeah it's, yeah. it's it's a problem in our society of this expectation. I mean, think about our like country, right? The pursuit of happiness is built into our yes. constitution. So it's really, so I can understand why we're all pursuing that's such a, it. That's such a good point, Dana. It's so true, right? Yeah. It's like we have set this, It's I've talked about it before, is like, happiness, we've set this as the goalpost. So happiness is the goalpost. So if that is the goalpost for you, for your success, if you slip at all, which is inevitable, you are literally never going to be pleased with with where you are because even you won't even be able to enjoy when you're happy. Because for me, like that was me before my recovery. When I would be happy, I couldn't even enjoy it because I was going, oh no, I know this isn't going to last forever. I know that I'm just going to be sad and clinging to the moment, right? Again, like Eastern concepts, yes. you know, that's, it's not, you don't cling to the moment, right? It's just, yes. So, uh, and I, I want to, we could talk forever. Honestly. I know we could, I know. <laughs> and I know you have to go. So but let me, one, let me tell you about attention seeking and please I, do be able to do that. Cause I think that's important. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think that those, these pejorative, these negative terms that are used to describe a lot of behaviors in the context of BPD, it's, it's so harmful because I think clients internalize or people, not necessarily clients, people who are struggling internalize these messages about themselves, which reinforces these ideas of brokenness and being damaged and all that. And when we really think about attention seeking, I just want to break that down a little bit. First of all, everyone needs attention. Everyone. Mm -hmm. We all need attention. So I just want to like take that like stigma out out of this idea that like it's wrong to want attention. Like Mm -hmm. Everyone, every problem in our lives requires attention. Every, you know, a plant needing water, it requires our attention. Things need attention and care. So there's that. And then there's this idea, um, I think that comes up that like people are, you know, I've heard parents talk about kids self-harming for attention. And what, what we've really seen is that attention can reinforce the behavior. So there's a kernel of truth here where if, this behavior is leading to increased care and warmth, then it is more likely that that behavior might occur occur again. But that's not the intent or the the initial sort of like prompting for it, typically. Mm -hmm. Um, So that I just want to like kind of break down a little bit and like explain like the kernel truth there, but really that there's nothing wrong with needing attention and that we should, especially kids, you know, like, especially like they need attention, right? Like, what what is going on for them that they need it, and that's what we should be, or what what is going on that is missing, and and how can we help them get what they need? And how, as you have a parent, how do you think you've been giving them attention? Like, what is yeah. the parents? It comes back to this. I swear to God, like software as a service, what I do is so good for therapy. It's like, what is the parents' definition of attention? What is the child's yeah. definition of yeah. attention? Yeah. Where do they differ? Because clearly the parents, like, I give you attention. I know what my mom would say. My mom would say, I cook you dinner. I help you with your homework. I'm here for you. Like, what do you want from me? 
And I would be like, I want you to hold me. I want you to tell me it's going to be okay. I want you to tell me about when you went through this as a child. I want you to remember what it feels like to be a fucking teenager because it hurts. It hurts. And parents, I think, forget that. Yeah, no. And that's crucial for communication is breaking down your definition, right? Like, I need you to be nice to me. I need you to respect me. Well, what does that mean or look like specifically concretely so that you everyone is really having the same understanding of, of what is needed or expected. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, there's that piece with the attention seeking. So I really, I dislike that term and I really try and correct, like, you know, give feedback yes. when I hear people using that. Um, and then again, manipulative is also another, Ugh. it's sort of like, we all need to get our needs met and isn't like, and I, I would argue that a lot of people with BPD are, are, are not manipulative. They're not very good at manipulating, right? They, they're no. struggling to express their, their needs. A lot of the time there's, there's, um, difficulty communicating what is, what is needed. So I wouldn't say that like, you know, that's a fair, it's not a conscious process. That's the thing. And that's the other piece. Is it leading to a certain outcome? It's maladaptive manipulation techniques that they aren't even aware of to try to get, to try to feel okay. But it's like, people with BPD are not manipulative. I bring up Mark Zuckerberg again, where it's like, that's someone who also, again, like Facebook as a company, right? They are no, understand what it takes to manipulate large groups of people to get their attention. That's a right, classic right. form of manipulation. Right. And it's <laughs> conscious. It's, I think, yes. it's, I'm so glad. Thank you for saying that because I think there's a difference between a conscious process and an unconscious process. And yes. manipulative implies some kind of conscious and, and, and malicious and ill intent. Yeah. Yes which is not fair. And I think what is really happening is someone is trying to get their needs met. And so, and my goal as a therapist is like, let me help you get your needs met in the most effective way. Sometimes I'll even like irreverently be like, I'm going to help you manipulate a little bit better than, than you are right now, because I don't think this is working for you. So taking again, the stigma out of like, what's wrong with trying to get what you need and what is wrong with needing attention. I need attention. We all do. So we all do. And I'd had an interview with Stephanie, um, psychologist Stephanie from Instagram mm-hmm. and she was on the podcast and she just said she's like I try to destigmatize manipulation that's oh, what she good. says okay. all the time you good. know and it's good. it's so true all of us I just hate the word manipulate I hate I am totally with you where I hate manipulation and I hate attention seeking because we're all doing it in a way and there's nothing wrong with it as long as we are it's more about getting your needs met and relating interpersonally with effectiveness on a conscious level. Right, right, right. right. Exactly. Exactly. So I want to finish off because I know that you have, you've been so generous with your time and I know that we were trying to wrap up within an hour so that you can get to your next appointment, but I wanted to finish off with what is some advice that you have for what are some words of encouragement that you have? Not a lot of people with BPD really think that there are no mental health professionals out there that will treat them and that will see them. And so do you have any just kind of like closing words for people with BPD and the hope that you see for their recovery? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, I think a really big thing is just like validating that a lot of people with BPD do feel hopeless and that I want to validate that that makes sense based on the fact that a lot of, there is a lot of stigma and that it is hard to find the right treatment. And I I want to say that like DBT is one way and there are many ways like Molly, you, I love how you promote like different reading, different books. Like this is not a, 
terminal sentence. BPD is a series of behaviors and maladaptive coping. So Mm -hmm. at the essence, you know, there isn't anything broken. There's a human who's found different ways to manage really hard things in in their life. So um, I love working with people with BPD. I love people with BPD are some of the most like warm, sensitive, creative people I've ever met in my life. So um, to me, like, you know, I, I, I don't know if that is at all helpful, but there are a lot of other people like me out there who welcome um, working with people with BPD. And so to not give up hope that even though you might've been validated a million times, like just keep, keep going and keep trying because there, there will be a right fit out there. And, and when the timing, you know, maybe just the timing isn't right too. Maybe you tried a, a certain therapy as a teenager, like yes. trying it again later might be a different experience for you. So Absolutely. And, you know, I have hope for where we're heading in the world of mental health. I think every single day, more people like you are being drawn to um, careers in the mental health. They're fighting against the stigma and Mm -hmm. there's more and more research coming out. So it's just like things are not getting worse. They are getting better. Is Mm -hmm. the system perfect? No. Is it overwhelmed and overloaded? I am full of empathy for for people like you, therapists like you who are thrown into leading a DBT group because they're strapped for resources. And it's better that you're there than you're not there at all, you know? And so it's like we have to have empathy for the the difficult system that mental health professionals are working within and have hope that it is changing and that things are getting better. So What a beautiful note to end on. So where can my, um, can my listeners find you? Where are you practicing? And it's okay if you don't want to promote yourself in any way in that way, but like, I want to give you the floor to kind of say what you're working on or, or some, any closing words. Yeah. Um, I actually like don't have social media right now. I'm just kind of cleansing a little bit. Good for you. Good for (laughs) you. I just like need some time. Um, but I'm practicing in New Jersey and, and licensed in Pennsylvania as well. So people can Google me, Dana Haynes. Dana Haynes. Yeah. And I work for Tri-State DBT Associates is my, my consultation team. So anyone in that area in the New Jersey, New York area, right? Or New, am I New Jersey, saying? Pennsylvania. New Jersey, yeah, Pennsylvania Valley. area. Um, I'm going to link to the Tri-State DBT Associates. So okay. anyone that's in that area, you know, and you are um, interested in working with Dana, I'm sure you can reach out to her. But otherwise, just thank you, Dana, for like donating your time today and um, just providing a little extra glimmer of hope for people with BPD. It's been such a joy to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Molly. So good to meet you. Yeah, it was amazing to meet you too. Forward to following more of your content. Take care. All right, that's it for today's episode. I just want to thank you so much for listening. Out of all the podcasts in the world, you chose to listen to mine and that's amazing and it means a lot to me. If you like what you heard today and you want to be notified as soon as each new episode drops, I got you. The best way is to follow my podcast. So if you're listening on Apple Podcasts on an iPhone, you'll want to search Back from the Borderline, click into the show's homepage, and then click that tiny plus sign in the upper right-hand corner of your screen. It will turn to a check mark, and then you are officially following the podcast. Now you'll never miss an episode. 
If you love this content and this podcast and you want to support me as I continue doing this, following the podcast is the best way to do that. If you want to get access to detailed show notes for each episode, connect with me on socials, or reach out to collaborate, you can find all that and more at backfromtheborderline.com. You can also connect with me by writing a review in Apple Podcasts. Do you have a specific question you'd like me to answer or a topic you'd like covered on a future episode? Start with an honest rating or review of the show and in the body of your review, include the question or topic you'd like me to address. It is my hope that you have the most amazing day, but if it isn't quite amazing, I hope at least our time together made it a little bit better. All right, until next time. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Back from the Borderline. If you'd like to receive my monthly written recovery musings via Substack directly to your inbox, send me a voicemail, join the Patreon community, or check out my Amazon booklist recommendations, visit backfromtheborderline.com and click to access my link tree.